0: This is the fourth Sunday of Easter, and uh, every fourth Sunday of Easter in all of the three cycles, we read a gospel about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And so, in my sermon today, I'm going to preach on this reading from John's gospel, but I'm also going to uh, preach first about the book of Acts. Uh, The readings from the book of Acts are read every Sunday in this cycle. Uh, from Acts through for the seven Sundays of Easter. And so I thought I'd say some things about the book of Acts, a little bit about it, and what they're talking about today. The nature of the Messianic community as it now seeks to be faithful to uh, the power of the resurrection and the transformative life that Jesus has brought to those who believe in him. The first three Sundays we have read about the resurrection appearances. And now we're going to be reading about in the history of salvation how that gets appropriated by Christian people and how it uh, should affect uh, the way in which they live. How then must we live is what the next three or four weeks uh, are going to be about. The book of Acts is volume two of Luke. Luke wrote Luke, the gospel of Luke. And he also wrote the book of Acts. He may have written Acts before he wrote the gospel. And there's some speculation that there's a volume three or was out there somewhere because the book of Acts ends so abruptly uh, with Paul in Rome that one would assume that he was going to say some more things uh, about all of this. Acts was probably written somewhere uh, around 62 to 64 B.C. or A.D. And um, Luke's gospel was written probably around 75 or 80. So it's about 30 years after Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended. And it's about uh, really two things. It's about Peter's preaching to the Jewish Christians, the first part of Acts, and the second one is Paul preaching to the Gentiles. And it's about how they understood their common life together. So, the purpose of the book is to defend Christianity against the charge of political subversion, that they're good citizens in the Roman Empire, to demonstrate the essential unity of the church in its worldwide mission. So the diversity of views are reconciled in the book of Acts in a way that gives us the impression that everybody is uh, living in harmony uh, with one another throughout the Christian world. And this flows into the next one, which is to vindicate uh, the part played by Paul. Now here's the thing. Paul, uh, in Galatians... Uh, speaks about his conversion. And, of course, Paul's conversion is described also in the book of Acts. But Paul does not agree with the book of Acts version. And he says, I had this conversion experience, and after it I went directly to Arabia. And I was in Arabia for uh, a period of at least one to three years, and then I came to Jerusalem... And I met with the disciples and the apostles in Jerusalem and we uh, struck an agreement about what it is that we should do in our missionary work. But in Galatians, Paul says, I sat down with them in Jerusalem and I said, is there anything that I am teaching that runs contrary to the way in which you think it ought to be taught? And he claims that the... uh, you know, Peter, James, and John said, nope, we're all lined up together here on every point. So it's a, an, an attempt, or Paul is saying, that they did agree with me in spite of what uh, some may say. And then he will continue. Uh, the final thing is that it's to give a picture of what Christianity is and how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome. One of the reasons for the dating of the Acts of the Apostles is that the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. And it's not even mentioned in the book of Acts, a lot of which takes place in Jerusalem. And Paul was martyred, he was killed on the road from Ostia to Rome in about 62 by the Emperor Nero, same time Peter was killed in Rome. So it had to have been before that in order for it to be mentioned in this particular way. So what is being described today in the reading is a church on her best behavior. And there are some features in what is described as how they, as Christians, lived in Jerusalem in their common life together. The first is that uh, the community absorbed, uh, was absorbed in religious teachings. They were learning about the tradition with a capital T, so that it would enable them, when they commended their greatest place of safety and assurance in Jesus Christ, they would be able to give them some idea of how this flowed out of the grand narrative. See, the New Testament writers believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the grand narrative that they knew about that was from Genesis up to the present moment. And so they were concerned to say, how do we convey this uh, to people? even prior to the writing of the scriptures. Remember, I say over and over again, the church is prior to the scriptures. The church wrote the scriptures. And the scriptures, as they're referred to in the New Testament, have to do with the Hebrew Bible. That was the scriptures that they knew about, because the New Testament didn't exist yet. So they're writing about absorbing themselves in religious teaching, They had regular fellowship in social and religious settings, so that has something to do with um, a community life together of worship and prayer. And they also were concerned about active care for one another. And in this passage, the book of Acts speaks about the people sharing all things in common. Do you think this may have been creeping socialism <laughs> <laughs> there's been a lot of talk about creeping socialism in the last four or five years in this country i don't know you know what goes around comes around we're talking about that before and then here it here it comes again primitive communism in the book of acts god forbid you know you do need to know this so that it, it puts uh, some some balance into this we're reading this account in the book of Acts about what how the Jerusalem Church acted, and the Jerusalem Church then was the you know the center. but we have no idea how other Christian communities uh, arranged themselves, although we do know this: three things emerged immediately within the first two hundred years or plus of Christian life. In this order, episcopacy, bishops, a baptismal creed, which we say when we baptize people still, the Apostles' Creed, a version of the Apostles' Creed, and the canon of the Holy Scriptures, last, last, so those three things will come to us in about 300 years, but we're at 60 now, 62, 64. And so we're talking about how we lived our life together. Why would Luke find this compelling, what the Jerusalem church did with pe- people, did with their possessions? Because he's from the Greek world. He's not from the Hebrew world. He's a Hellenist. He's a Greek speaking Gentile. And he wrote his gospel And the book of Acts, he is the Shakespeare of the New Testament. The best he could write in what is known as marketplace Greek uh, in the ancient world. That's what the New Testament was written in. It wasn't written in what Plato and Aristotle, the Greek they used. It's marketplace Greek that was used all over that Mediterranean area. So I had a New Testament professor who said to me once, uh, Koine Greek is the kind of Greek a truck driver would use to explain to his wife why he hadn't come home the night before. <laughs> Does that help? Or hurt? Who knows? But they had an understanding of a common life. And in the Hellenistic literature, the poetry, the Proverbs, the, the uh, uh, st- things that were part of their culture there's one that we have found that says, for friends, all things are common. Which means, of course, that this is a story about the generous impulse that Christian people practice and the call that, we, that is on to all of us to be generous, to be willing to extend and to understand those kinds of things and maybe to accept the reality that none of us own anything. We have stewardship over what it is we own. And therefore we must be careful. One of the things that we discover in reading the Old Testament is that the world is created in such a way as to put us in the center, but also to vest us with enormous responsibility to have stewardship for the creation. And we have got that wrong often, you know. It's like Adam gets the power to name the animals and things. So that has been interpreted by many as having dominion. But When you start using dominion language, that means you have complete control over this. You can do with it what you wish. Instead of thinking to yourself, maybe there is a way to do this, where I honor the responsibility to have stewardship and become less uh, tyrannical over the creation because it benefits me to do so. And how we understand that over time. It's easy to say and hard to do, isn't it? Easy to say and hard to do. And lastly, they talk about the cont- being continuous and steadfast in prayer both personal and corporate prayer, as an important thing to do, which then is a reflection of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Luke is the great theologian of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and he's talking about how the people of God always are animated by God's Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So the early Christian community in Jerusalem understood that it was the presence of the Spirit that gave them the ability to meet the challenges and opportunities that were in front of them. The earliest uh, depictions of Jesus in Christian art are of Jesus as the good shepherd. And if you travel to places well like Italy, if you go to Ravenna, you'll see these beautiful mosaics and there are uh, a number of uh, portraits of Jesus carrying a sheep or a lamb around his shoulders. And we see that in other locations uh, in Europe where that is the earliest form of Jesus. The earliest mosaic of Jesus, though, that exists, I got to see when I was a student in Rome, uh, underneath uh, St. Peter, uh, the altar, the high altar at uh, St. Peter's Basilica. You had to get down on your hands and knees and stick your head in a hole... And turn and look up like this. And it's a fragmentary mosaic of Jesus as Apollo. Or maybe Elijah and a chariot going up, you know. But for the most part, it is that Jesus is the good shepherd. The earliest depiction we have of Jesus on a cross dates from the 5th century, the 400s. When I was a student there, I stayed in a pensione right across the street from the circus where Ben-Hur has his chariot race in the movie. And right next to the circus is a 4th century church called Santa Sabina. And Santa Sabina has these very old wooden doors. And on a panel about this large is Jesus on the cross. It's the first one. Not earlier than that. We might reflect some other time, maybe in Episcopate in 101. Why did things change? What was the reason for the change? Because that's something that's important to reflect on. But Jesus as the good shepherd is something that's important. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, we read today, was the... uh, Chapter that I had to translate from Greek into English when I was in seminary at my test. And I need to tell you that I made an absolute pig's breakfast out of it. <laughs> so when I handed it in, you know, it's in class. So, you know, it gives you the, well, you have your own Greek New Testament. He said, turn to, Je-, and translate it into English for me. So when I finished the translation, I came up and I handed it to him, and he looked at it, and he says, You are taking Greek next semester, aren't you? <laughs> I said, Oh, yes, Father Edwards, I'd plan to do that. I am, of course. <laughs> it hurt doubly because if you're going to make a, a translation from the Greek New Testament, John's Gospel is the dead simple one because he wrote like greek is a second language for him right it was not really polished greek whereas luke's greek was fabulous you know it was it's really really good so and also very hard and words in it that don't occur in a lot of other places You know, people really have spent a lot of time studying the Bible. I have a book uh, that is a a a, a word book of the Greek New Testament that has every Greek word in the New Testament and how many times it occurs. So there are some places and some some books of the Bible that maybe have a Greek word that only occurs there once. So it requires people who are still bearing down and spending time because what happens is that even after you do that research, you begin to see that there are things that have been discovered that we didn't have before, graffiti on walls, other writings from uh, uh, other times that use that word. And then you begin to say, ah, this must be the way the word is used, you know. Monogonese. Only begotten, right? The word we use for only begotten son occurred very few times. So now we've found monogenes in other places and we begin to say, oh, this is how it's used. So it's, it seems to be fairly reasonable to um, understand that as God's special son. And that's how we might translate it and understand it. Now here's the thing. In this reading today, Ernest uh, Cockrell said at the sermon discussion, I should have said this then, and he said it afterwards, and I'm grateful to him. The way in which sheep are herded in the Middle East are not the way we herd sheep in the West. I worked on a cattle ranch for two summers when I was a teenager up near Bishop. And every once in a while when we were driving the cattle, uh, there'd be some Basque shepherds. Who would be like on the hills with the sheep and so forth. And they'd be herding, herding the sheep. And that meant that they were behind the sheep with a dog driving the sheep. They were her- herding the sheep. And in the Middle East, even to this day, the shepherd leads the sheep. So when Jesus is speaking, they hear my voice and they follow me. It's the image, agricultural image, of the people who heard that. Oh, yes, because that's what a shepherd does, lead the sheep out, not drive the sheep or herd the sheep. And they usually work in twos, so that means one shepherd leads his flock, and then there's a shepherd right behind him leading his flock, so any of the sheep in the rear kind of get out of hand, he can tell the shepherd up front that you need to get your sheep Organized here because they're, they're coming apart a little bit, so you need to do something about that. So, Jesus speaks about how people hear his voice and what that might mean and how important it is. But there's also a lot of language in this reading from John's Gospel and other places <coughs> which does not sound very inclusive. You know, nobody comes to the Father except through me, I am the door of the sheep. You must come through me. All of those kinds of things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, you know, you can get yourself in a twist about that because it seems pretty rigorous. Some don't mind, but many do. And for many, that kind of conversation, or at least emphasized conversation, could be a deal-breaker. For me, David Brewer, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe that. And I would wish to be able to have the courage to commend to other people my greatest place of safety and assurance. But insisting upon absolute belief in those rather rigorous passages may not be the best plan. Dr. John Macquarie, who was the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford when I was in seminary, Wrote a book called The Principles of Christian Theology. And he said this about the issue of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and how we might understand it. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique. And therefore, so is Muhammad and so is Gautama Buddha. In place of the words rejected, unique, final, absolute, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in the Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity which he has brought to a new level. Let me just say something about that before I finish reading this. Uh, For the early Christians, the Book of Acts Christians and so forth, Jesus for them, and certainly for the eyewitnesses, Jesus was the new model of the human being. And what they were seeking to be part of is that renewed humanity, not some other disembodied place but to be God's people in the world. In that YouTube video I talk about all the time with N.T. Wright and Sean Kelly and Jay Harris. Sean Kelly says, he's a philosopher, he said, you know, uh, everybody, a lot of uh, people like to say, oh, well, you know, all these stories in the New Testament, there are a lot of them are just like, you know, the stories of the Greek gods and uh, all of this sort of thing. And it's really very much like ancient historiography and uh, so forth, but he said here 's the difference: The stories in the greek uh, in Greek history about Z- all the gods in the pantheon they sometimes come down to earth and they come down to earth <clears throat> and they 'll fill <clears throat> an important figure in them like Achilles. but when they fill the, fill the person, the human being up, they are all puffed up. Their locks are curlier, they're more handsome, they're taller, they're more bulletproof. You know? And you see story after story about all this. Well, he said, if the Bible is true, if the New Testament is true, Jesus is here, and he's just a regular human being. He's not puffed up. He doesn't puff anybody else up. He's a regular human being just like us. And that's what people saw, that the presence of God in this person, if God were walking around as a human being, he would be like him. And by extension, we can get some idea about what we might be as we're part now of the new humanity and what it is. So Macquarie says, he is definitive in the sense that for Christians... He defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity, which he has brought to a new level, and the nature of God, for the divine Logos expressive being has found its fullest expression in him. Logos in Greek means word, but it can also mean principle, and it can also mean organizing principle or plan. So when you understand what he means there, expressive being, Jesus has found its fullest expression in him. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history, such is, as such it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth claims in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses, fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. Now at the conclusion of today's gospel, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And that means in one sense uh, the willingness to live a life of intention like the people in the book of Acts. And to say, these things that we're doing allow us to perceive and understand the true nature of the abundant life, what it's really like. And if we do these things, we find not only do we achieve some species of internal serenity, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally, but we also feel strengthened and more equipped to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of us. So this week, give thanks for the great shepherd of the sheep who knows each of us by name and unconditionally loves, forgives, and accepts us. If that isn't an Easter message, I don't know what is. Amen.